We're um, carrying on a series looking at uh, the book of Mark, and um, we're uh, reading from the beginning of chapter 14 this week. And uh, we're in the last week of Jesus' life. We're getting closer and closer to Easter. And the passage that we're reading today has got some really uh, starkly contrasting events. There's an incredible act of extravagant worship sandwiched between plots to kill Jesus. So we're going to be reading from Mark 14, verses 1 to 11. So chapter, yeah, verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him, that's Jesus, by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelves, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. So we've got this story of this woman. And Mark doesn't even give her a name. She's just this woman. And, um, and so we're kind of thinking, well, how is this significant for us living in the 21st century? And, and it's because Jesus made this incredible statement in verse 9. He said, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So it's a really significant event because Jesus singled it out. Jesus never said, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, people will be told how I did this amazing miracle and I fed 5,000 people with, with five loaves and two fishes. He never said, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, people will be told about how I walked on water or how I healed a blind man or I raised the dead to life. They, we talk about them, but Jesus never singled them out. And there are many things that people did for Jesus that we, we just don't even know about. People would have done amazing acts of kindness and, and acts of service for him. And, and they're not recorded anywhere. But there was something special about this individual act. That despite being criticised um, by others for what she did, Jesus saw it as a beautiful thing. Not even a good thing or a noble thing or even the right thing to do. He declared that it was a beautiful thing, a lovely thing. And that 2,000 years later, we would still be talking about this extravagant and lavish act. And so when Jesus singles something out as being significant, then it's important that we pay attention to it. 
Why did this woman's action provoke such praise from Jesus but scorn from others? Now, chapter 14, it starts with the chief priests and the scribes, and they're plotting to kill Jesus. And uh, they've been looking for an opportunity for a while now. And uh, Jesus had made his way to Jerusalem, so this looked like the ideal opportunity. Except for the fact that in Tuesday's time, it was going to be Passover. And Passover was a yearly celebration, and they celebrated what God had done 1,500 years earlier, where he'd rescued the people from, um, from slavery in Egypt. You know, and Moses brought them all out of uh, Egypt. And Passover festival was a huge festival. It lasted for one day, and then it was followed by this week-long festival of unleavened bread. And so the chief priests, what they should have been focusing on was occupying themselves and getting ready for all these people that were going to be making their way to Jerusalem and all these Passover lambs that were going to be uh, uh, slain. And uh, it was a huge time of celebration and remembrance. And thousands of pilgrims would make their way to Jerusalem to celebrate this festival. And that was their problem. Because Jesus was there, so that was their opportunity to get him. But so were thousands of other people. And Jesus' popularity was increasing and more and more crowds were around him and listening and wanted to be where he was. And so they knew that if they went up to him and they tried to arrest him when the crowds were around him, then they, they risked provoking a riot. And so they knew they couldn't, whatever they were going to do, they couldn't do it out in the open. That's why they were seeking how to arrest him by stealth. With so many pilgrims crammed into the city, they had no way of finding Jesus away from the crowds unless someone led them to him, which is what Jesus, uh, Judas ended up promising to do. So while all this plotting is going on, all this plotting and scheming, Jesus is having dinner in the house of Simon the leper. And even that fact should make us stop and wonder. Because lepers were outcasts. They were considered to be unclean. They were ostracized from their family and friends. They were forced to live outside of the community, outside of the village. People avoided lepers. You certainly didn't go around to their house to have dinner with them. So if Simon was having a dinner party, we assume that he no longer had leprosy. Um, but the name had still stuck. That was his nickname. You know, Simon the leper. And we don't know, but maybe Jesus healed him. Jesus healed many people. But what we do know is Jesus' heart. Jesus spent time with those people that um, society avoided, people that were looked down upon by others. Jesus embraced them. He spent time with them. And unlike the Jewish leaders that were plotting his demise in order to retain their own power and position, Jesus was happy to be with those that others rejected and others avoided. So there he is in the house. There's Jesus, the Simon the leper, and there's these others that Mark calls them. And uh, the accounts uh, in Matthew and John tell us that this included the disciples. Jesus was there, he was reclining at the table, and all of a sudden this woman comes up with this alabaster flask of pure nard ointment. Mark doesn't tell us her name, nor does Matthew, if you read the same account in Matthew. 
But when you read the same thing in the book of John, John clearly identifies her as Mary of Bethany. And she was the sister of Lazarus, who Jesus had raised from the dead. Now, when people came for dinner, it would have been custom or courtesy to put a dab of perfume on the feet of guests. And that's the sort of thing they did in that, this type of social settings. But what this woman did went way beyond any social norms or expectations. She had this flask, this alabaster flask of ointment, and she broke it and she poured the whole lot of it over Jesus' head. Not a bit, not a drop of perfume, keeping the rest for later. Remember, this is really expensive. She broke the flask and she poured the whole lot out, every last bit. Now, I don't know if you're a, a fan of perfume or aftershave, you know, but imagine if you'd got that bottle at home and you accidentally broke it and it went everywhere. You wouldn't be able to hide it. <laughs> that smell would just permeate everywhere. The fragrance would fill the whole room, probably the whole house. When you walked through the front door, you'd know it. And this wasn't your cheap perfume. It's all not the stuff you, you, you knock off stuff from Lidl. This was, it said it was very, very costly. And nard was imported from India. And so, you know, it was imported. Usually, it was so expensive that it was only reserved for kings. We know it was worth a lot. It said 300 denarii. And one denarii was the equivalent of a day's wage. So 300 denarii would have been worth a whole year's wage. So you think about how much the average person earns in a year, or maybe even how much you earn in a year. And that's how valuable this flask of ointment was that this woman was holding in her hands. And then what she did with it just went beyond what anyone expected her to do. What she does is incredibly lavish and extravagant, this expensive ointment. And this jar would have typically had a long neck and there would have been a little plug in it. So you can just pour it and just a little drop would have come out, at a, uh, one drop at a time. And, and then if you'd have done it like that, this perfume would have lasted for such a long time. But there's no dripping. There's no sprinkling. She douses Jesus in all of the perfume. Every last drop of it. There was no denying what had happened. There was no accident. There was no, oh, what's gone on there? The whole house would have been full of the aroma of perfume dripping off Jesus. It was a lavish and sacrificial act of love and affection. And it really provoked some very strong reactions. Verse 4, it said, There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. And Matthew is really clear who the some are in his account. He says, and when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? So it's the disciples that are scolding her. 
And imagine the disciples sitting there and watching this scene unfold. And there's Mary, she comes in the room with her perfume and they expect her to carefully take the stopper out of the top and allow a a drop to fall and maybe anoint Jesus' feet as a courtesy. But instead, she smashes the whole bottle, pours it over him. And I wonder if any of them jumped up and tried to stop her. It's like, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, are you mad, woman? What are you going out of your mind? What are you doing this for? Maybe even they, they directed their indignation to Jesus and saying, why did you let her do that to you? And the disciples, they scolded her. And that is a harsh rebuke. When you get scolded, you know you have been told off. She would have been left with no doubt about their criticism of her actions, how wrong, how crazy they thought she was. But Jesus, Jesus defends her. Verse 6, Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The disciples saw her actions as a waste, a waste of precious ointment and a waste of money. But Jesus saw her act as a beautiful thing. Exactly the same act of worship, but two very different ways of interpreting the same thing. Very, two very different opposing viewpoints. The disciples sought to condemn her, but Jesus commended her. The disciples saw it as a waste because to them, there was like, well, what's the reason to empty an entire bottle of valuable oil on the um, head of Jesus? To them, it was a wasted act, a foolish act. The equivalent, perhaps, of taking a year's wages out of the bank and then setting fire to it, it had gone. What use is it now? Think of all the good things that could have been done with that money. You can imagine them saying it. They objected to the waste, declaring the money would have been better spent on the poor. But Jesus, he saw straight through this and he said, you will always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. Nothing that this woman had done or or was going to do was going to stop them from serving the poor if that's really what they wanted to do. Jesus wasn't dismissing the poor. He wasn't saying that they shouldn't be helped, but he was rejecting their argument as a smokescreen for what was really in their hearts. Because the disciples' objection wasn't really about the poor. It was a a revelation of how money held a greater priority than Jesus did, especially in the hearts of Judas. Money was his idol, and he sold out to it. He sided with the chief priests and he betrayed Jesus in exchange for money. He scolded her for what a waste and yet he said, I'll betray Jesus for less money. And serving the poor is the right thing to do. The Bible is very clear about that. That's why we as a church partner with Christians Against Poverty because we know it's the right thing and God tells us to defend and work on behalf of the poor. But that is not our primary calling. That is not our purpose. Because our primary calling is devotion to Jesus. 
And when we do things on behalf of others, the world will look on and they will say, well done. I met with these people from the council this week and they were going, wow, we think what you're doing with Christians Against Poverty, we think it's amazing. We think that's fantastic. I was taming it down a little bit. But, you know, they were like, this is incredible. This is an amazing thing. And people will say, well done. They will congratulate us. But when we give ourselves extravagantly to Jesus, then people are likely to say, ooh, hold on. What are you doing? You don't need to do that. That's a bit much, isn't it? (laughs) And until people see Jesus for who he really is and understand what he's done for them, all the things that we've been singing about in worship, then our expressions of personal devotion to him will always provoke a strong reaction. Mary was scolded by the disciples. And that's just that encouragement to us, not to let other people tell us to moderate our love for Jesus. There is nothing modest about Jesus' love for us. We've sung that. We've we've spoken about it. That, that, That tongue that came was... I can't, I'm just amazed at how great your love is for me, that you should show mercy on me. There's nothing modest about what Jesus does when he lavishes love on us. And so we shouldn't allow other people to, to conform us and try and tell us that we should, we, should, we should modify our affections. Our affections should be lavish in return. The disciples may have scolded Mary. Jesus applauded what she did. Leave her alone. Don't trouble her. She has done a beautiful thing to me. He declared that what she'd done was a beautiful, lavish act of love towards him. Why? Because she held nothing back. Not even the jar. And even the jar, would, it's, it was an alabaster jar. It was like marble. It would have been valuable in, in of itself. But she broke it. It couldn't be used again. It was, it was useless after that. And this wasn't just an act of generosity, but it was an act of faith. It was an act of confidence in Jesus. We, we don't really know how she came by this. But we know it was really, really valuable. And and most women in those situations didn't have an an income. They weren't going to earn money. Maybe it was a family treasure or an heirloom. We don't know. But what we do know is that she had this very valuable thing. And she was willing to give it up as an expression of her love and devotion for Jesus. And Jesus said to her, you've done a beautiful thing to me. And in Greek, because I am a Greek scholar, as you all know, there are two words for good. Agathos, which describes something that is morally good. And kalos, which describes a thing that is not only good, but is beautiful. So a thing might be agathos. That means it's, it's the right thing to do. We're doing the right thing. It's morally right. We know it should be doing But it can still be hard. It can still be stern. It can still be unattractive. But a thing that is callous is not only good, but it is winsome. And it is lovely. And it has a charm about it. And it's a beautiful thing to do. 
And so what Mary did, she expressed her love for Jesus, not only by doing a good thing or by doing the right thing, which we all know there's right things we should do, but she did something that was lovely. She did something that was beautiful. And we often sing about the reckless love of God. And uh, why do we describe the love of God as being reckless? Because it's extravagant in the depth that it will go to for us. The reckless love of God, it leaves the 99 and it comes out and it searches for us. There's just such a depth to God's love. It's not a love that calculates how little can be decently given or how much can be held back without being stingy. There's a recklessness in love which refuses to count the cost. There's an extravagance in love. There's an abandonment. There's a kind of, I'm in this. I'm all in this attitude. And Philippians 2 says, it's talking about Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus emptied himself. He held nothing back. He didn't hold on to what he had. He had that equality with God, but he didn't hold on to it. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. His was an extravagant, lavish love poured out for those that didn't even love him. How can anything we give to Jesus be too much or too extravagant when he gave everything for us? Mary understood this. She glimpsed this. And her heart overflowed with an extravagant affection for Jesus. And at Charles Spurgeon, very famous preacher, he said, When lives are lost in Christ's honour, or strength is spent in his service, there is no waste. It is what life and strength are made for, that they may be spent for him. Contrast that to Judas' reaction. In, the gospel of, uh, in John's Gospel, he makes it clear that it was Ju- uh, Judas that objected, uh, objected to this lavish act. And in John 12, verse 4, he says, But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? The others may have groaned about it and rebuked Mary for a waste, but Mark tells us that this generous act of love and devotion and worship provoked this, this real act of treachery in Judas. You know, he was so mad so cross that he went straight out and he went to the chief priest and said you know you're looking for Jesus I'll tell you where he is you give me money I'll lead you to him Judas could see the value of the ointment as soon as it was poured out on on Jesus's head as soon as Mary poured it out he knew exactly how much that cost you know those people that you know they can tell you exactly how much everything costs that was Judas he knew exactly how much that uh, ointment was worth And as it rolled over Jesus' head, he was seeing those pound signs disappearing. 
For three years, he'd been with Jesus, listening to his teaching. He'd been observing firsthand the miracles, engaging with those people that have been healed. But he couldn't see past the money, the money that was being wasted. And unlike Judas, Mary knew how valuable that ointment was. It belonged to her. She knew how priceless it was. But she also saw the worth of Jesus. She knew how valuable the ointment was. But to her, Jesus was worth so much more and deserved every bit of it. Mary's actions demonstrated that Jesus was worth more to her than money. And it's just like the story of the widow in Mark 12. And it's a familiar story. And it says, um, so Mark 12, verse 41. And he, that's Jesus, sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. And many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to them and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. The widow, she didn't really have anything of worth to give. And what she did give didn't really amount to anything in monetary terms. It was just a penny. You know, what can you do with that? But out of her poverty, she gave everything she had. For her, it was an extravagant act of worship. And it was an act of faith and confidence that God was worth giving all she had. If she'd have had more, she'd have given more. But that's all she had, and so that's what she got. And so the difference between this story and the woman with the expensive ointment is that we aren't easily offended by the widow and by her lavish act of worship. It's easy to admire her and say, well done, that's great. You've given a little bit there. It doesn't provoke the same reaction. None of the the disciples were saying, well, she should have kept it because what's she going to live on? And because what she gave wasn't a lot in monetary terms. Yet out of all those who put money into the offering box, Jesus singled her out. Jesus said that she put in more than all the others. And there were rich people that put in large sums. And clearly she hadn't put in more money than the others. But what she had put in was a greater act of worship because she'd put in all she had to live on. What she'd put in was of great cost to her and made her totally reliant on God. And Mary, Mary of Bethany, had much more. And so she gave much more. And it's likely that that ointment was her security. She wouldn't have had a property or necessarily had an income to rely on in the future. She gave more in monetary terms, but both women demonstrated the same heart. And it's the wholehearted devotion. It wasn't about the inherent value of what they gave because the two coins makes that clear to us. They weren't really worth anything at all. But it's the heart 
the heart with which they gave it that made Jesus single out both of their actions. It was their expression of love and devotion to God. So what does that mean for us? Jesus wanted Mary's extravagant act to be told whenever the gospel was preached. It's obvious that he wanted us to learn from extravagant love and worship of him because there is something profound about personal devotion to Jesus that he delights in. We're not sure why Mark and Matthew don't name Mary in their accounts. She's just the woman. But we know that Mary of Bethany, she had so much to thank Jesus for. She was the sister of Lazarus. And and he died. He was buried in a tomb. tomb, And Jesus called him out. and, And Jesus brought him back to life. And when your dead brother comes back to life, that's a good reason to worship Jesus, isn't it? And give him everything you got. She knew that Jesus was God. You know, who else could do such amazing things? And I think sometimes it's easy to worship when things are going well. You know, we can look at Mary and we can say, well, of course she worshipped Jesus extravagantly. If my dead brother had come back to life, I would do the same. Who wouldn't in her situation? But God doesn't change. And God's still the same. And God is worthy of our love and devotion when things are going well. And when things don't happen the way we want them to. And when our prayers aren't answered in the way we want. And uh, I don't know. I'm not a theologian. But maybe that's why Mark doesn't name Mary. Because all the time she's unnamed, she could be anyone. She could be any person, any Christian, any of us. Because despite our circumstances... Despite whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, we all, as Christians, have our own reasons to be grateful to Jesus. He died for us. We're no longer separated from God. We don't have to fear judgment. We have the privilege of calling him our father. We're loved, we're accepted, we're cherished by him. Not because we've earned it, but because of what he's done for us. We have the confidence of knowing that we will have eternity with him forevermore. No more tears, pain or striving. We'll be in his presence where there is fullness of joy and experience his pleasures forevermore. And when we choose to focus on those things, then there are reasons every day to express our love and our adoration of Jesus. We don't have to wait for big events to happen in our lives or answers to prayers Because we don't live our lives in the big events and the amazing things that happen. We live our life in the mundane. And that's when we make those choices. And it's a heart issue. Imagine a marriage where a husband is just newly married and he deliberates over what he needs to do now. Now that he's married to his wife. And he thinks through the vows and he thinks, I know what I need to do. I need to be faithful. That's what I've promised to do. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be faithful. I'm not going to leave her for anyone else. I'll come home every night because that's the right thing to do. That's the good thing to do. And so that's what he does. And that's good. And that's right. But by itself, that doesn't make a marriage. 
Because being faithful in itself without any other acts of kindness and affection is not an expression of love. It's really important. But there's a difference between duty and devotion. And duty says, what must I do? Which is another way of saying, how little can I get away with? What is the minimum I have to do? But devotion goes beyond that. Devotion compels us. We want to do something. We want to do more. We want to express that love that is there, that was within us. It's not how, how much can I get away with. And devotion is the motivation. And it comes from our hearts. Because love doesn't just do what's right. It goes beyond that. And it does what is lovely, what is beautiful. And Jesus is delighted by our risky, lavish expressions of worship. He delights in our devotion. And there's a real difference between someone doing something because they ought to and doing something because they want to do it. And you just think of that child who is forced by their parents to say thank you for that lovely pair of socks they had as their Christmas present. And the words come out of their mouths because they know they have been told and it's the right thing to do and it's good manners to say thank you. But there is absolutely no feeling behind it, no expression of joy or delight. And uh, there are many things we do, even though we don't feel like doing them. And that's right. And that's not an excuse not to do them because it's right that we do those things because that's responsible and that's a good discipline. And we should do what we know is the right thing to do. And we shouldn't be dictated to by our emotions. Well, I don't feel like it, so I'm not going to do it. No, if it's the right thing to do, then we do it anyway. But when someone does something for you because they want to do it out of an expression of love, when Tony turns up, unannounced with a bunch of flowers and there's no reason for it <laughs> that's <laughs> that's it's when you do the little things that's when you feel cherished when you feel valued when you feel appreciated it's the little things <laughs> even the clean even when I come home and I go in and the kitchen's clean and it's tidy and it's just you didn't have to do that but when somebody does something for you because they want to do it, it touches your heart. And we all know that when it touches your heart. And you think, wow, that is, that is amazing. That's lovely. I feel cherished. And Oswald Chambers, in My Utmost for His Highest, said, If human love does not carry a man beyond himself, it is not love. If love is always discreet, always wise always sensible and calculating, never carried beyond itself, it is not love at all. It may be affection, it may be warmth of feeling, but it has not the true nature of love in it. And he goes on to say, there are times when it seems as if God is watching to see if we'll give him the abandoned tokens of how generally we do love him. Extravagant worship, it goes beyond duty. It goes beyond what is reasonable or necessary. It's an outpouring of our delight and our love and our gratitude towards God. 
Mary gave an abandoned token of her love. It's not just about how much we give. It's about how much we hold back. The willingness to give of ourselves and that which is most precious to us. It wasn't just the ointment poured over Jesus. The flask was broken too. Nothing was held back. Jesus wants us to love him wholeheartedly. We cannot give anything to God. He doesn't need anything. Everything belongs to him. And yet God delights in us when we delight in him. 